We are looking again this morning. And so glad to have you here with us today. Welcome to Faith Alive. We pray that God will bless you as you come and worship with us today. And again, Proverbs chapter number 6 is where we are reading this morning and, you know, we stand here and realize and confess that our topic this morning is not the easiest topic in the world to preach on. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's probably very easy to preach on. It's very difficult to live. As I was standing here or preparing this week, I thought that preaching about pride is like answering that impossible question. You know, that question that you can ask a man, have you stopped beating your wife? Again, there's no answer to that question. I probably could reverse it here with some of you and say, why is it have you stopped beating your husband? But we won't. But again, to, to answer that question, there's, there's no easy answer, is it? To say, no, I have not stopped beating my wife is to imply guilt. To say, yes, I have, again, is to admit guilt. Either way, either way you lose. So how do I, how do I preach about pride? I stand here and say, be like me. Well, for me to say that would imply a measure of pride in my life, wouldn't it? And after all, be like me, I'm humble, look at me, how humble I am. Well, <laughs> doesn't work. Do I say, don't be like me? Well, the question becomes, why don't you change? Why don't you rid yourself of that pride that's in your life? Reminded when I think about this topic about pride and humility, the book title I heard about years ago is called The Ten Most Humble Men in the World and How I Taught the Other Nine. When you think about that title, it kind of sums up what it means when you think about the issue of pride. But regardless of how difficult it might be to, to preach about, the simple fact is we have to address it. It's biblical. It's there. The Word of God is one of the things that God despises. So let's consider our text this morning, shall we? Proverbs chapter number 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Now understand when Solomon writes these words. Solomon is not sitting there thinking like you do. You write down your grocery list and then you come back a few minutes later. Oh yeah, I forgot to add this. Oh yeah, I forgot to add this. And every once in a while, Mary's on her way to the store and I send her a text. Oh yeah, you got to add this to the list. The increase from six to seven is not a sudden change in the writer's mind, but rather it's a rhetorical style. 
which emphasis is placed on the second number by contrasting it with the first number, which is one less. And so Solomon is not saying, oh yeah, I, I forgot, there's actually a seventh thing that God hates. He, he's, he's putting emphasis that these seven things are really things that God hates. They are an abomination to Him. These are six things, again, that the Lord hates seven that are abomination. And what is the very first thing? English Standard Version says, haughty eyes. Your version may say, a proud look. These are seven things that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises Wicked plans, feet that make haste, run to evil. False witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Again, the very first, haughty eyes, a proud look. Notice here that these first five things that God hates are, are all body-related. Haughty eyes, lying tongues, murdering hands, wicked Hearts, feet, run to evil. But again, the very first are these eyes. These eyes that are full of pride. You may have heard, of course, of the listing of the seven deadly sins. It's not in Scripture, but the close of the 6th century, Pope Gregory the Great classified all sins under seven Distinct sin. It was his view that all sins could com committed could be placed under one of these seven distinct sins. He said these sins were anger, e envy, impurity, gluttonous, slothfulness, avarice. Of course, the first thing he mentioned again is pride. Of course, from that time on until now, these seven sins have been known as these Seven deadly sins. We could spend probably several weeks on all of them. But we're not going to do that. Spend long enough on pride this morning. It's where our focus is today. What is pride? How do we define pride? How do we remove pride from our lives? And so again, we start, what, what is pride? What is pride? It's, it's one of those words that's easier to show than to define. Right? Someone said about pornography, I can't necessarily define it, but you know it when you see it. It's the way it is with pride. You, you can't necessarily define what pride is. I mean, we, see someone walking around in a very nice, fancy suit, and we say, well, that person has a lot of pride. He must have spent a lot of money on that. But then I read a news story the other day where a tailor in Texas is actually making suits for Army veterans for free. He makes a couple a year, 20 or so a year, and he gives these guys, these Army veterans, these ones that have been wounded in combat, he makes them a nice suit. So how is that pride? Someone pays nothing for it. 
You can't necessarily define it, but, but you know when you see it. One theological word book explains pride this way. Pride refers to an unwarranted attitude of confidence. I said why pride can have a positive connotation of self-worth or boasting, it is often used in Scripture to refer to an unhealthy, elevated view of oneself, abilities, possession. An unhealthy, elevated view. An unhealthy view, a view of thinking much more about ourselves than what we actually should. This is the measure, measure of pride, an unwarranted attitude, an attitude that says, I can do this, an attitude that if we were to be perfectly honest, would say, I don't need God. I can do this in the place of God. And this is why pride, of course, is one of the seven deadly sins. And many believe that pride was the original sin. You look in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, you realize these passages we see the downfall of Satan, how he became who he is, how he became the devil. Ezekiel 28 tells us that Satan, Lucifer, was an anointed guardian cherub in verse 14. God placed him. He was on the holy mountain of God. He was in the midst of the stones of fire. He was blameless in his ways until the day you were created. Until unrighteousness was found. And you, Ezekiel, is seeing, hearing from God. And God is saying, back in the day, Satan was, Lucifer, I should say, the morning star, was, was on the holy mountain of God who walked on the stones of fire, who was blameless, the most beautiful of all creation, until unrighteousness was found. Isaiah 14 again explains us how you are fallen from heaven. Verse 12, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Isaiah is saying, this day star, the sun of the dawn, the sun of the morning, stood there and said in his heart, I can be like God. I will be the Most High. I am just as great as Yahweh Himself. And we find out, verse 15, that God casts him to the ground. You are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Satan, Lucifer, the exalted angel, was not content being the greatest angel. He decided he would be God. He would be God. Therefore, God struck him down. And this, again, is the problem, not just with him, but with every one of us. We think we can be God. We can take the place of God. We don't need God's instruction and path and guidance. We don't need to depend on Him. My own abilities, my own confidence, my own strength is good enough. 
We are exhibiting pride. It will not stand. The eyes of God. That's why in Proverbs we read such words as Proverbs 15. Verse 25, The Lord tears down the house of the proud. He maintains the widow's boundaries. What is Solomon telling us? He's saying that God watches for the ones who are weakest. The ones who are the most vulnerable. Again, we have to understand this in the context of, of ancient Israel. Many of you here that are widows, you have a pension, you have a retirement, you're still able to live in a nice home and get around and whatever the case might be. But a widow back in those days had very little to go on. They were the weak and, and most, most defenseless among all the people. That's why James says poor, pure religion is to care for the widow, to care for the orphan. They did not have a chance if, if someone was not looking after them. Solomon tells us here that God watches over them. The house of the proud is destroyed. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Rest assured, he will not go unpunished. Everyone who is arrogant in their heart, everyone who is proud in heart, everyone who stands there and says, look at me, I am somebody. It's an abomination in the eyes of God. Rest assured, be assured. Be assured. He will not go unpunished. We see this in our society. We see people run around in the pride of their hearts. Sometimes we don't see the punishment that comes. I mean, it's great when we see them fall down. It's great when we see them being judged and we can say, look, your arrogance has brought that upon you. But a lot of times we don't see it. But rest assured, Proverbs tells us, be assured, the arrogant in heart will not go unpunished. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. His book, Mere Christianity, he says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. And chastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And I've heard others say that we can trace every sin, everything back to that one word, pride. Anti-God state mind. A state of mind that says, I don't need God in my life. We know what pride is. It's exalting ourselves over God. So let's consider my second point this morning. Why is pride so dangerous? Why is this so dangerous? What's wrong with pride? Why is this so so bad. You know, we talk about peacocks and how they are proud when they spread out their feathers. In actuality, the feathers being spread out are a, 
their mating ritual for the peacock. That's why they always do it. And I'm at the zoo. I don't know what that means. Must be my handsome good looks, I guess. There's nothing wrong with having pride. You know, we talked about work last week, and I, I think we ought to have some, some pride in, in what we do. Nothing wrong with doing a job and doing it well done and, and having a job completed in a way that, that, that you don't have to worry. Be surprised yesterday, I found out, or was it Friday? Something I bought off of Amazon last October. Broke down on me. Broke down on me. Some cheap Chinese gadget. Yes, you can wave your finger at me and say it's what you get for buying a cheap piece of junk. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have pride. We take pride in things that last. Most of us, if I were to say, you know, we're coming over to your house, most of us will be out there cleaning furiously. We have pride. We don't want people walking around in some kind of filthy pigsty. Hopefully your house is not like that. I'm not insulting you here. We're not talking about this kind of pride that makes you get dressed and whatever you did this morning to come to church. I'm talking about this pride that exalts itself over God and says, I can do this. I don't need Him in my life. Proverbs tells us of the dangers of pride. Tells us in Proverbs 18, verse 2, that pride hinders us from learning of others, from others. Proverbs 18, verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. Proud person who's a fool takes no pleasure in learning, but only in expressing his opinion. A week from today, August 13th, is my dad's birthday be sending him a card. Don't worry. So I'm telling you that. If you're listening, Dad, happy birthday. I'll send you a card. It's in the mail. But it's fine for me to send a card. I can mail it out tomorrow or Tuesday and probably will get there by Friday or Saturday. Usually it does. Usually makes it on time. But imagine if you would me driving home with Mary this afternoon and say, I have to tell my dad something right away. I've got something very important I have to share with him. He needs to know this right away. So when I get home, I'm going to write him a letter and stick it in the mail. Now she would probably look at me like you're thinking, why don't you pick up your phone and call him? You know, I realize there's this thing called a phone where you can reach someone around the world in an instant. Why would you take a, a four or five days to send a letter for something? You have to tell him right away. For me to sit there and bang my fist and say, don't you understand rain or sleet or snow or hell? Nothing stops the delivery of the mail except for 45 federal holidays they have a year. Me to stand. Don't you realize that, that, that the Pony Express at the U.S. Mail has been around for hundreds of years and oh, it works great. Well, this is a silly illustration, I realize. But the fact of the matter is, how many of us in our lives 
given counsel, we're given guidance, we're told this is a better way to live your life. And instead of listening, instead of heeding the words, we keep on going our own way. We keep on doing our own thing. We keep on going this own path that we're on. It's nothing more than arrogance in our heart. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to live this way. I'm going to walk my own way. We need to sit there and look at you and say, dude, don't you realize your wife's pretty mad at you. You might want to change your behavior. Well, I'm fine the way it was. She should have known when I... Okay, whatever. It's pride. It's arrogance. Nothing more for you to sit there and someone say, maybe you should treat your children in, in, in such a way and you sit there. Well, these kids, they need a... Back in my day, we used to get a sweet whatever. It's nothing but pride. It's nothing but pride. Pride keeps us from learning. Yes, I know this is how you did it, but, but maybe, maybe someone, someone knows something a little bit more. Your own pride keeps you from hearing from them. It not only hinders us from learning, but causes strife. Pride causes strife. Proverbs 13, verse 10. By insolence comes nothing but strife. Insolence or presumptuousness or arrogance. It always ends in conflict, doesn't it? When we are full of pride, when we have to sit and insist on our own way, insist on getting the last word, insist on proving ourselves, it is going to end in strife with someone. Mad at your spouse again. and Someone asks you, why are you mad at them? And you sit there and you think, I, I really don't know. Why are we even fighting with each other? We don't know. All we know is something happened and I had to prove to you that I'm right and you're wrong and you have to prove that you're right and I'm wrong and, and you have to get the better of me. And we fight. We fight. Pride hinders us from learning. It causes strife. It always results in strife. We always have to show each other up. In times have I sit there and been watching a, a baseball game and pitcher will throw the ball and he'll hit the batter. And so what does the, the next time that the one who's hit, his pitcher gets on the mound, he throws the ball and he hits another batter. The next thing you know, those guys are out there at home plate pushing and shoving each other. Nothing more than pride, right? You hit my guy, I'm going to hit your guy. It's the macho rules of baseball. Full of pride always causes conflicts. James says what causes wars and strife is it's your own selfish desires, your own prideful ways. Hinders us from learning and causes strife. Makes liars out of us. Pride makes liars out of us. Proverbs 25 verse 14. Like clouds and wind without a rain. It's a man who boasts of a gift. He does not give. A clouds and wind without rain. I mean, here you are. You, you get up in the morning. You think, let's go have a picnic. Look outside. There's clouds out there. 
wind is shifting and becomes cooler. Oh, we better cancel, cancel our picnic. And about three or four in the afternoon, we're staring at each other and we're driving each other crazy. Like, you know, we probably should have just packed up and went on our picnic. Nothing worse than canceling your plans because it's going to rain. And guess what? It never rains. Sit there. Boys are sitting there thinking, come on, is it going to snow? Is it going to snow? Are they canceled school? No, go to bed. Wake up the next morning and sometimes it's canceled. Sometimes it's not canceled. No, I'm sorry. They told you 20 feet. Back in my day, we went to school uphill in 20 feet of snow, but looks kind of bad, doesn't it? That's what we do when we're, when we're proud. We, we sit there, oh, I can, don't worry, I can do this, oh, I can take care of this, and then suddenly, it's not done. Job's not finished. We don't have the ability. It's all because Pride has made us promise things that we're unable to deliver on. Pride hinders us from learning it, causes strife, it makes liars out of us. Finally, it always, always leads to our downfall. We know these words. Pride goes before destruction. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit goes before a fall. Proverbs 18, verse 12, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. Humility will come before honor. Proverbs 29, One's pride will bring him low. He who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. It doesn't matter who it is. Whether we see it on the pages of the newspaper or social media, whether we see it on cable news or we never see, understand the person who is full of pride in their heart, they will meet a terrible end. You know, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about the book of Daniel, especially chapter number 4. Nebuchadnezzar there in that chapter boasts about his great kingdom. God says, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you really think you're great? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put you out in a pasture. You're going to eat grass like a cow. You're going to grow your hair and your fingernails like an eagle. God humiliated the greatest king alive at that time. As I began to read and think about this, I was Get ready to put in my notes here. I read something not just about Daniel 4, but the book of Daniel as a whole. It said this, a further emphasis of the book of Daniel is the pride and arrogance of humankind in God's total condemnation of egotism. Chapters 1 through 6, human pride is the subsurface issue behind the problem that introduces each chapter. And really, you can just go and look through Daniel and you see over and over and over again where Daniel shows how pride leads to destruction. Chapter 1, 
king said, Daniel, he three Hebrew children, you have to eat my food. And Daniel says, we're not eating your food that's been sacrificed to idols. What happens at the end of the chapter? They're a lot better off than the guys who ate the king's food. The book went on in the visions of chapter 7-12, through 12, the arrogance of future world leaders is the enemy of God and His people ultimately. In each case, God has acted or will act to turn human pride and arrogance to shame and ridicule. And the narratives of chapters 1-6, through six, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar are perfect examples of human leaders who rebel against God's authority. In both cases, their pride reduces them to pathetic states of helplessness and ridicule. Their God has acted. They are hardly recognized as kings of the great and mighty Babylon. Pride of the world empires is central to the ideas of chapter 7 through 12. The schemes of empires in chapter 7 and 8 is a succession of world leaders which depicts the limits of imperial pride reaching the climax at the little horn with the big mouth. Chapter 7, verse 8. The new heavenly kingdom led by the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man replaces these proud earthly reigns. Chapters 10 to 12 of Daniel, the supernatural forces of heaven will move to crush the ultimate anti-Christian ruler of earth who has arrogantly raised himself above every god. In other words, that whole book, that whole book, and by the way, you're sitting there and you're fretting about what's on the news or you're fretting about what's going on in our country. Turn off the news and read through the book of Daniel. Realize God is teaching us through this book that He is going to destroy everyone who exalts Himself above Him. So you don't have to worry about what Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau or whoever you want to name, what they're doing. The leaders of men who exalt themselves are going to be cast down. Again, when you read through this book of Daniel, you read, you know, think about a fiery furnace and guess what happens? The Hebrew children are not destroyed in lion's den and guess what happens? Daniel's got his feet propped up on one lion, his head as a pillow on another lion. The pride of these kings are reduced to nothing. You see, the fact is, God will not give His glory to anyone else. Yeah, you may never live in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But if you live your life thinking, I know best, I can do it my way, I can live my way, I don't need God's help in my life, guess what? God sees that just as much as any president who would dare sit there and say, I am the greatest of all. God will destroy both the same way. Right? Exalts oneself to the place of God. Makes fools of us all, and so we get to our last point this morning. How do we how do we rid ourselves of pride? How do we get rid of pride in our lives? Again, this is where it's so difficult. Because again, I can stand there and say, Be like me, I don't have any pride. To say that is a kind of prideful statement, isn't it? 
Again, if I say, don't be like me, you ask, well, why don't you change? Why don't you get rid of that pride? Well, it's no easy answer, but Proverbs, Proverbs gives us some wisdom. First thing, we should probably not take delight in another person's failings. We shouldn't take delight when someone else falls. Proverbs 24, verse 17 and 18, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles, as the Lord see it, and he be displeased, and he turn his anger away from you. Sit there and we say, got what you deserved. I knew that was going to happen to you. You should have listened. You should have been better. Maybe, maybe instead of that, you should look at them and say, maybe, maybe for, for the grace of God, I could be in the same place. Oh, but for God's grace, I could be there as well. Lord, help me. Lord, help me not to be like so and so. Help me not to be like such and such. Help me, help me just for myself not to wind up like so many, so many pastors, so many preachers that if I were to name their name, you would say, oh yeah. Lord, help me not to do that. May not to be like so many whose lives have fallen apart. I sit there and wag my finger at them and say, that serves you right. Shouldn't take delight in another person's failings. We probably shouldn't be boastful and bragging about our greatness, our achievements. Proverbs 25, verse 6, don't put yourself forward in the king's presence. Stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. It's better for the king to see you. Say, come up here. I wish I would have thought about it when I was getting this ready, but it's another proverb, and I think we mentioned it last week, that tells us that a man's work, a man's work that has done well, that has done good, can, can bring himself before the king. You don't need to Stand there and say, hey, king, look at how awesome I am. Do your job in the king. But notice Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let another one praise you, not your own mouth. A stranger, not your own lips. I saw on Facebook this past week that the diner, the restaurant that's a little ways down the road on Sullivan Trail, it's been sold, and somebody is opening a, a restaurant there. I don't know who they are. Wish them well. Always game for new and good places to eat. Though it probably shouldn't be, I guess. But it got me to thinking, how many times have I went to the mailbox, hoping beyond hope that that winning lottery ticket or a big check was in there, and I get a flyer that says, come to this place. This is the greatest place in the world. We have the best pizza. We have the best Italian food. We have the best hamburgers in the whole universe. And what happens? You drive by that place after a couple months and you see a for sale sign and it's closed and you think, what in the world happened? I get it. It's marketing. That's what we do, right? I mean, who wants to... Go to a restaurant and they send you a flyer and say, our food's kind of gross, but hey, come and eat anyways. 
There's places though that never get a flyer and you're like, man, that place has been around for a hundred years. Why, why has it been around? Because we know. We know. Somebody asks, where's a good place to get pizza here in Wind Gap? Oh, you got to go here. Trust me, it's hands down the best pizza in the world. And notice I'm not naming names because I don't want to split the church. Fact of the matter is, we do that so often. We do that so often. Last night, Mary and the two older boys were playing a game, and I was strutting around like the king of the world. Poor Carter and I were on a team, and the time we finished and we'd been humiliated. I had to admit that Carter had a terrible teammate. Always happens. I mean, the same way I'm going to beat you guys like a drum. By the time we get down to the end of the game, I'm like, this is the stupidest game ever invented. I'm never playing again because these guys humiliate me. That's what it is. That's what it is with pride when we sit there, brag, and we think we're really somebody we're not. Of course, my final, final way is not found in Proverbs and Philippians chapter 2. We should be. We should strive to be like Jesus. The key verse, Philippians 2 verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Of course, John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God the Son. Didn't think anything wrong with it. Didn't think anything about it. Philippians 2, though, instead of walking around and claiming His deity, notice that He emptied Himself took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Of course, we know these words, but let's go back and, and, and look at why Paul wrote these words. Philippians 2 verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is telling the church here, if you really want to make me happy as your spiritual father, have this mind like I have. Have one mind. Be united in heart. And then the key here, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the entrance of others. Then we go back to verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, if you really want to remove pride, you don't walk around telling everybody how humble you are. You don't have to display your humility. 
You don't have to come and park five miles away, sit in the very back and let everybody know, hey, I'm trying to prefer you. I want you to have the front row seat. You know what you do? You serve someone else. You look after someone else. You realize, you know, I don't have to have it all. Maybe I can, maybe I can give to you. Yes, I realize there's only one piece of chocolate cake. Maybe that's not a good example because I'd probably take it. I want you to have it. I want you. Instead of, instead of me getting inside the church because it's raining and my makeup and my hair and whatever else, I'm going to stand out here and hold the door for you. I'm going to think about what you want. What do you like? What is, what is your preference? How can I serve and look after you? Yeah, it'd be easier for me. I mean, I tell you what I want. I, this is what I want. I want to do this and I want to go. But Paul says the mind of Christ. So set that aside and think about someone else above ourselves. Again, when you think about this, think about this. Think about a king who created this universe who has legions of angels around his throne worshiping and praising him. Singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. And he sets it all aside. And he comes down to a 13, 14, 15 year old girl and, and a man that barely can make ends meet every week. He sits there and he lives in a place where he doesn't even have a place to live. I mean, for crying out loud, at least come in 2023 where you got a car and a jet and an iPhone. Walks among hard-headed idiot guys that don't get his point. Has to tell them over and over and over what he's doing. He sits there and allows Roman soldiers mutilate his body. This is what our Savior did for us. You're going to sit here and look at your husband, your wife, be mad at them because they're not giving in to your every request. You're going to sit here and take all your stuff and leave the church and because they don't sing the exact song that you want to sing, or they don't preach as short as... All right, maybe that's a good reason. And I should wrap it up here. But We think about all these things, and it's nothing but our own, our own selfish ambitions and pride. And we forget that old song, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross emblem of suffering and shame and yet that it was on that cross that heaven's best gave his life for us and the next time you, you get upset at somebody because 
you want to be the top dog and they're in their place. Remember instead that there's a cross. Our Savior gave His life. The next time you're ready to run down to the attorney and file papers because tired of him always doing this or that or her always doing that or this. And again, I'm not talking about major issues where that might be warranted. Something, Some things are so silly and yet we're ready to start World War III over them. Remember, there's a cross. Savior who gave His life for us. Let us humble ourselves just like Christ did. And this is the first Sunday of the month, obviously, and Communion Sunday. Worship team, why don't you come? And we're going to take communion here. We do this in a simple act. 